Before we kick this show off, let's hear a word from our sponsors. Under Pressure Outdoors is brought to you in part by Hasmore Outdoor Products. Hasmore Outdoor Products manufactures quality replacement seats for a multitude of climber brands as well as a host of other products built with the hunter in mind. Take it from us. Your butt will thank you and you'll be able to spend more hours in your stand. Hop over to their website by clicking on the link in the podcast description and order the tree stand trick out kit for your stand today and you'll have everything you need to hunt longer and harder. Make sure you use code UPO15 at checkout to get 15% off your next order. I'm your host, Will Krebs, and this is the Under Pressure Outdoors Podcast. It's been a long week, and you know what? The as the world would have it, it has had the whole under pressure outdoors crew spread out all across the state for work. As much as we'd love to do this for our day jobs, we just can't quite make it happen yet. That being said, we did manage to all gather together this week at one point, not for a podcast, but for a fishing trip. We all got together this week, and we got with Adam Berkelmans from the Intrepid Eater. And we went out with Captain Will McNutt of the Down South Fishing Company. Both of those guys have been on the podcast. At one point or another, episode 68 was Captain McNutt, which you're going to hear again here in just a second. And then you can hear Adam on episode 96, Eat What You Kill. And we sit there and we just talk about all this awesome food that he makes out of wild game. So we got out on the fishing on the boat. Seas were rough. We caught plenty of snapper. And then Adam goes and makes some awesome sashimi. And it was just a great trip. So we're just going to roll you guys back into uh, the history on Captain McNutt. You can even come back again and catch him just a few episodes back where the captain goes west and he actually went way out into Colorado and shot himself a nice elk. But until next week, you guys enjoy this one and we'll catch you back and uh, tell you all about this dang fishing trip. But uh, buy your crawfish tickets. The link will be down in the bottom of the, the uh, podcast description. We'll catch you guys next week. Enjoy this episode. We've all heard the saying that a bad day of fishing beats a good day at work. And I guess that's true. That is, if you don't fish for a living. A fishing guide, like a modern-day pirate, follows his map from Big Red X to Big Red X in search of a hidden treasure below the surface. An individual more at home in the water than on dry land. A person who sees more sunrises and sunsets from the helm than anywhere else. This week, we are proud to be joined by a man with salt water in his veins, Captain William McNutt of Down South Fishing Company, to talk about how a good day of fishing for him is a good day at work. Well, Will, you know, I didn't get a chance to chat with you earlier like some of the other fellows that are here in the, in the studio, right. but I'm, I'm innately curious, you know, what in the world takes a guy who's born at Camp Lejeune and grew up in Perry, Florida, out in God's country, where you got to go out like a thousand miles just to get into 10 feet of water and then make you decide that you're going to throw a dart at the map and decide you're going to go catch fish in New Smyrna, Florida. It's a, it's a long story, and, uh, you know, it's just never being satisfied. And growing up as a young kid around some true legends of the outdoors and the sea, I was 
so intrigued with listening to my my grandfather and my papa and my uncles that you know made their living in the sea or it was just you know like the old people that they grew up eating what they caught and they and what they hunted for every day and um with that it's just brought me to let's see from from louisiana all the way to the mediterranean trying to figure out everything i can about the ocean and every day is a new thing every day every day i'm finding that treasure we were talking about uh every day i'm finding new fish or new bottom or finding a wreck that i have no idea if that's somebody's sunken boat from last year or if that's a you know a spanish warship that went down and the next thing i know i'm pulling grouper off of it and come to find out that person that caught that grouper's never even seen a grouper before and oh first time yeah first man. time I, it's you know, not I, square is it <laughs> no, 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 no. We'd have a new studio, maybe. Uh, but yeah, you know, ima- imagine this for my job. Okay, I've caught eight million red snapper. I've caught eight million red drum. I've caught endless amounts of grouper and everything else. And it, and there's a point in time where it does start to get dull. But imagine having a career where every day you're taking new people out that's never caught fish before and they're they're seeing something for the first time i get to live i get to relive catching my first fish every day uh so when did you get your captain's license and start guiding trips uh roughly about two years ago and you know like i've wound up in new smyrna because behind the airport there at lions club that's where i took my my uh, captain's license test with Adams Marine Seminars. And I found I was a pretty nice place. I mean, the east the east coast, eastern seaboards are a really, really busy place. But New Smyrna Beach is pretty small. It's actually, yeah. it's it's got a small town feel to it, which, you know, coming from Perry, Florida, you ain't going to find much smaller town <laughs> than that. You know, um, graduating class of 100, and it takes 100, you know, an hour and 15 minutes to drive across my county. You know, it's a pretty small town. But You know, you mentioned earlier that your your parents and your grandparents made a living off the sea mm-hmm. and that whole area you know starting like a steen hatchie going up around the big bend all the way out you know through panacea mm-hmm. uh out to cape sandblast and we clear out to dustin that whole forgotten coast is really dear to me and i have watched even during my lifetime the fish shops um the mom and pop fishery just people pulling their livelihood out of there man it's going away um net ban that's another thing i understand why that may need to happen but and now we got oyster closures Mm -hmm. um i don't know if that's something you feel comfortable talking about but is that is that that part of the reason why you're over here versus over there or not really i mean the uh i I just kind of like that's the past of the past i mean uh i actually still have one of the old commercial boats, one of the old bird dogs. I mean, most people don't even know what that is. Is that it's, like a mullet skip? Or? It's like a mullet skip. It's it's a it's a skiff. Yeah. It's completely flat bottom, got a tunnel in it, and the motor is in the very front of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I I get people every day coming up talking to me just trying to figure out what that boat is. Well, I found one at Home Assassin that was made out of aluminum, which I've the first one in my life. All the old people, including my grandfather, built them on sawhorses out in the front yard. And that way, because you could, 
you know, with that motor being in the front, you could pull more weight than push. You could put 800 yards a net in it. In the box in the back, right? In the box in the back, and you could fish, you know, you could pull that net around and see your, and stand up on the front of the boat, and you could see the fish, and it was just really good fishing platform. But you know, I, bought, I bought that because, you know, like, that aluminum's never going to go anywhere, and that's part of my history. And, like, I really don't need the boat. I really don't need it at all. But I can't get rid of it because, like, my grandfather's is – ashes sitting in some hammock somewhere right now because you know it's he got rid of it after the net band and kind of broke his heart you know and he got rid of his old boat so i keep that as part of him and part of my history it's heritage absolutely yeah yeah i'll tell you what man if you ever want to roll that bow out with a guy that's never done it before um i'd love to go and to try to explain what these boats look like especially the ones that you said were built on sawhorses i've seen a bunch of them they're not real deep they're not real big you you might be surprised the guys went to see in them um and it's kind of hard to explain but there is usually a hole right square runs right through the the bottom of the boat in the middle of the bow and that's where you put an outboard motor and as you said i think that's because just by having it up there keeps the prop down you can just you can just haul a ton with it you can haul a ton because you're pulling not pushing It's, it's and it's they they designed with that, a motor. They designed that themselves. You know, it wasn't yeah. some, you know, some big boat company come up with that. It was a bunch of old men, you know, that used to have, you know, rowboats, you know, rowing, yeah. putting their net out to rowboats, and then they figured out a better way to do it. Makes you kind of wonder how that how that first one looked when somebody was like, "Hey, let's take this boat and stick the motor in the front, right, rather than in the back." Somebody called that guy crazy. Yeah. They're still calling them crazy. Yeah. <laughs> they're trying to, they look like, you know, they see me going across there with a motor in the front. It's like, that guy flying on the front of that boat. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't look right. It's, it's a pretty awesome rig. But, uh, you know, how, how I got over here, you know, starting out at a young age, and uh, I, my papa, my daddy's, my daddy's daddy, he was a, saltwater tactician to the mat he was incredible could catch any fish anywhere he he was one of those guys who pull up in the mud hole and could pull the fish out of it just one of those guys and i learned a lot of my strategic type of fishing from him learned like shallow water grouper fishing and just different you know targeting fish with different different aspects of different types of fishing and then my grandfather which my 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 mother's dad he was the one that used to run the nets and he was like just the true outdoorsman and outdoorsman that taught me everything about everything, you know, and for him, it was all about food. Yeah. I was talking about, they made a living on the land, but it wasn't yeah. for money. Their living was for food. I remember he told me the one time they said they eat so many mullet one year that, uh, they actually went and sold some mullets. So they could buy hot dogs. They got tired of eating fish. <laughs> <laughs> he said, it's a bad time when you sell fish to eat hot dogs. Yeah. You know? It's crazy. As a lot of people think you ate mullet, you know, maybe they've had some bad smoke mullet or something like that. But if you've had sand bottom mullet, especially the ones that maybe eight to 10 inches, six to 10 inches long, deep fried in cornmeal. That is some of the best eating fish that you'll ever pull out of the sea. And I, I so think, few people just, know about it. I think it's an acquired taste. I mean, oh, yeah. I love it. I, I absolutely love it. But I'm trying to like look through other people's eyes. Like I don't like salmon. 
But I like it smoked. Everybody yeah. else in the world likes salmon. But, like, my first salmon that I want to claim that I like is, you know, when I'm standing in a stream somewhere in the mountains and I'm, you know, fly fishing and I hook a salmon and I'm fighting off a grizzly with the other hand. <laughs> and I'm standing over that, that grizzly holding that salmon. That's my salmon story. I don't, I don't want to eat no salmon out of the grocery store. Might be your last one. Yeah. <laughs> Just the... <clears throat> the mental picture I get. Uh, yeah, yeah. What the, there was you a, got like the uh, the Captain Morgan pose on top of the grizzly bear yeah, holding the right. salmon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Peter, Peter would love that. <laughs> so, what made you decide to give up a land based living and just become a fishing guide? That's not really a fair question because <laughs> <laughs> I've never been really land based. I mean, I I hunt everything that they legally let me, but when that's not going i've always been in the water yeah and i've always been you know trying to you know sharpen my skills and um since the beginning of learning all that from them old men and i had an uncle of mine that was just an absolute true legend that from he he moved down as, as a charter in fort myers incredible snook fisherman and you know an incredible gr- a grouper fisherman and uh, he learned it all himself on all old Loran, uh, you know, Loran numbers and old paper graphs and running off a compass and, you know, just kind of like no one taught him that. He learned every bit of it himself. And I never learned an ounce of anything from him but stories. And really all of my true offshore fishing that yeah, I've been kind of like chasing his legend in, in that in that aspect because – I mean, you know, like seeing pictures of him, a big Warsaw grouper on, you know, you know, this few hundred pounds, you know, the, the fishing with pure fiberglass rods and, you know, old pin reels that's electric motors, but ain't nothing but a starter hooked to the side of it. You know, it's like these old guys, you know, just bare minimum out there just getting after it. And, and then, um, were they horsing those Warsaws up by hand at first? I mean, those things get mammoth man well I, i'm sure in the beginning but i mean back then anybody could commercial fish yeah. anybody could sell anything legally so you know most of them you know you catch 300 pound warsaw how much can you eat you know you could you could pay for your whole trip at the market with it and that's what most of them are doing and um <clears throat> I, I i took all of his stories i took all of you know what my grandfather taught me just about how just about how the land and the water works and our place you know as people that should live off the land and respect it at the same time and then all the technical stuff i learned from my papa and when i got the opportunity to run the boat that i am now because my uncle bought it and then he decided to get rid of it because he would never drive it i was the guy always driving it bought the boat from him and so here i was young guy has no idea what i'm doing but i'm out there just I'm, I'm trying to find people to pay for gas and i'm learning every weekend every day that i could get off work i was out there and then it got to the point where i was taking people fishing practically as a guide just trying to you know just trying to pay for gas you know that's just at your groups guys and i was like and i'm at the helm most of the time and i got where i was just enjoying it so much just watching other people catch fish so when you were you grew up in perry so west of there are you familiar where spring creek is oh yeah 
So did you happen to know Leo Lovell or the Lovells, the guys that own the Spring Creek restaurant before it went, you know, went away I, with the I know the name, but I don't, I don't know him personally. Oh, it's, I've, I know he wrote several books from there. He was quite a character. He wrote Spring Creek Chronicles, and he wrote mm. three of them. That's a good read. So you've read that because one of one of the books he talks about, like, or one of his early stories, he starts off with, "Don't ever take money for fishing, not even gas money, <laughs> because it's going to lead you down this life. You know, right, <laughs> right. you'll never get off the water. It'll be it's like heroin, you know. And listening yeah. to your story, I was like." I, yeah, you just went out there getting some gas money. Next thing you know, you're taking some more money, and now you can never quit. So, Right. So what kind of trips do you guide? Inshore, offshore? If you can Google it that comes out of the Atlantic Ocean, I'll take you to catch it. I mean, really. because <laughs> uh, Marlin fishing, boys. I, hey, we might not catch him, but I promise we'll go we'll where he him. is. You know, like, yeah, I mean, the marlin fishing isn't that big out of here unless you want to run to Bermuda. But, I mean, they've come passing by. But, I mean, it truly, on the on the, our inshore trips, I mean, New Smyrna Beach has the most incredible red drum fishery that I personally have ever seen. Now, we can go back home to Perry. And I can put you on 40 or 50 fish or slot fish you're going to take home, you know, to your family as an eat. Well, red drum, once they get to a certain size, you have to turn them back because that's big breeders, which makes perfect sense for conservation. Because once they get to a certain age, they produce more eggs, which keeps our fisheries healthy. Well, in New Smyrna Beach, it must be some the mecca for breeding. Because my average fish is 35 to 40 inches. And anybody that's ever pulled in a red drum knows that's, that's a monster. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about cobia numbers here. <laughs> and we're averaging that every day. I mean, it's it's not a surprise to catch a 40-plus inch red drum throughout the day. And uh, our black drum bite's good. Uh, the big ones are scarce, but you find them. And, um, yeah, they get on worms, though, back you know along the – and, and see, and yeah. over there in the Atlantic, you know, the fish are a lot healthier than ones in the Gulf. Okay. Like, cause you go, you go to Panacea or something, you you pull in a eighty pound black drum, and he's just, you know, he looks like a junkyard dog, like he's been beat up, drugged through the mud. He's got worms. He's you know, a lot of times poor, and you're like, ah, I'm just gonna let that one go. Yeah, it one. may as well, cause the only way to eat it's if you put <laughs> it in soup, because it's like, I've tried right. frying it up. It's like you got to go like find tough you know, Trinidad Charlie to cook this thing up for you. <laughs> you know? but over there, and I have people come from the Gulf and we'll catch black drum. They're like, ah, you know, they're wanting fish. I'm like, hey, buddy, try it. If you don't like it, I'll take it from you. Uh, the, like with the big drum over there, everything is so much healthier. If we go catch a gag in the Atlantic, and I don't know the answers to this. If we go catch, a say, a 30-inch gag grouper, I would say he would be 20, around 20% heavier than he would be in the gulf of mexico just healthier fatter stronger fish hmm. now i don't know the answer to that why because the ecosystem in the gulf is teeming with life we have more fish you i know? wonder if it's because the water and the, you know, the yeah, water in the gulf's a little cooler or, i think um, there's more pelagic, susceptible to red tide i think there's more pelagic bait hmm. it comes up and down the atlantic from from up north because like you're not gonna have you're not gonna have uh 
you know migrations of bait from literally you know the cold waters up in you know new jersey areas and uh you know you don't have that in the gulf well you, and there's certain times of year where you have stuff pushed down here and i think maybe just that mixture provides you know nutrients in the water that grows these fish bigger makes sense so what is your <clears throat> inshore inshore versus offshore versus any other type of fishing what is your all-time favorite to either participate in yourself or or guide for uh you know for me it's it's going just as deep as possible let's get out to the gulf stream because you know you know why i moved to new smyrna in that aspect other than i have more clientele over here is we have a chance to catch stuff that usually you can't find anywhere else and we get out there you know and we might find record-breaking grouper that you've never seen before or we might pull in a bull a bull dolphin or we might find the biggest wahoo you ever seen or we might have a chance at a white marlin or you know is with that gulf stream providing providing new fish every day which it really really drew me to this area is like you have the opportunity every month something new something new happens something new happens i'm not a guy that likes i'm not a processing line type person i don't like stamping out every day i like one day being a thousand feet next day we're catching drum in the river next day we're going out you know 150 foot you know pulling in snapper and i love the the newness of it and here really provides that and the chance to go out there and troll for big pelagics being our wahoo and our sailfish and our mahi and all that is just it's incredible for me because you know i'm not used to that i come from the gulf which if you don't drive 170 miles you ain't finding that and i don't know about y'all but i don't have a boat that i want to go 170 <laughs> miles in tomorrow you know uh, plus your fuel bill is just oh, oh my god <clears throat> especially now Woo. yeah telling me that's a long way to run period because you ain't that's a couple hours. Yeah, hell, more. even I, I had the pleasure of fishing with William, and even running back in, I think at least one or two of our guys fell asleep oh, on yeah, the way man, back you in. Sitting back in those those bean bags, I get oh. looking back and like I want to figure out a way I can get a bean bag in this captain chair. <laughs> Put this autopilot. thing on autopilot. Oh man, good thing I don't have that, right? Yeah. I'd be a dangerous captain. You wouldn't want to go with me. Like, was I got sleep up there? <laughs> He pushed that button. Do you have folks a book like two day trips where they might do an inshore offshore combo where you? It's rare. No, okay. it's rare because uh, and that's your diehard fishermen. Usually that's your buddies or somebody that knows you, return customers, something like that. Somebody's really wanting to grind it out, which you know come and find out it's your toughest customers because they have expectations. The best customer in the world is a guy that has no idea what he's doing. So um, it's like, I'm your man. Yeah. So, you know, you go out there and you catch a fish that, like I was talking about, like I'm used to. We're smashing them every day. And, like, I'm like, ugh, you know, another one of them. And they're, like, the greatest thing ever. And then I, then it strikes me in my mind. Like, this is this person might have booked this trip six months out. Might have been saving all year to come out here with me today. Me. This nobody. This me. He is He has took time out of his life to come here and come fishing with me. And he is excited about what he caught. I'm excited too. Yeah, I'm just man. as happy as them. And I remind myself of that every day and it never gets old. I, I think that's kind of part of why we got into this. Cause like we, we want to see those, those new people 
get into it. Like we, we want to be that portal where new people can come and get into hunting or fishing or just because I, I, I still remember being a kid and just getting into it as a kid. And I love to see that same look on people's face, you know, when they kill their first deer or, or first whatever they kill. It's just, I get the same thrill that I did back then when Joe Schmo kills his first squirrel. Or yeah, whatever, you know what I mean? thing is strong right. in this room. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. So, <clears throat> all these different species of, ca- uh, of fish you catch, what is, what is probably your favorite fish? It changes every day. <laughs> yeah, that's the one. Was. The one that bites. <laughs> right, right. I mean the the one that the one that haunts me at night is the one we catch back home. You know, they, like a gag grouper. I mean, it's just they're tougher to catch over here. Much tougher. They're a lot bigger, a lot bigger in the in the Atlantic. And um, man, they, they they just sorry to interrupt. I was gonna, are they quick to rock you up here like the in the Gulf? Oh yeah. I mean, it's like right now if you're not paying attention, they're. Well, the, the difference the difference in the Atlantic is you have a lot of current, hmm. a lot of current. Back home, we drop dropping anchors, just sitting. It's kind of almost stagnant water. It's not moving much. Well, here you might be fishing two hundred fifty foot, and you know you got five knots of current. So, he might rock you up, or he might be chasing. You know, he might be chasing your bait thirty feet off the hole before he bites it. But that's that's your dream catch. When if he if you can get him chasing him off the bottom, you got him whipped then because he he doesn't have no rock to run back to. They'll do it, but the thing uh, thing about the Atlantic you have you have huge ledges in a lot of places, and uh, if if you got him on a bad angle, I'm talking about like huge ledges and like ten twelve foot ledges. I and, used to spearfish out there. I, yeah, I'm so familiar. Yeah, yeah, yeah you, right. you we'd, we'd actually tuck underneath them and let the current push you parallel to them, right? Hoping to scare stuff out. Yeah, right. In in the Gulf, I mean, I'm looking for some of my best holes. I'm looking for a piece of coral, something <laughs> yeah. real flat. You know, your bottom machine looks like slime or something. I mean, uh, a guy in the Atlantic goes over there, he probably would never find a fish until somebody shows him how. Because I mean, you just you're looking for something so minuscule, and then over here, it's a lot of it's a lot bigger. Everything over here is bigger. It's like going to Texas, you know, going to the Atlantic. You know, everything's bigger. But um, on the bottom, I would say a guy grouper. And with moving over here, I'm talking about I've been doing this my whole life. Well, I'm so new at everything. It's I'm still a green. I'll be a greenhorn to the day I die. I mean, like within the past, within a year from now, and I'm catching quite a few of these fish right now. I've seen my first wahoo. I've seen my first sailfish. I've seen uh, not my first mahi, but my decent numbers, big fish, and all this. And I'm learning so much every day. And, you know, I caught the biggest wahoo I've ever seen in my life. And I, I caught one, we, well, we caught one, 91 pounds. That's an in, incredible wahoo. And just God blessed me with it, you know. It was kind of like opened my door to being in New Smyrna Beach. And um, on the troll, there's probably nothing cooler than that. Because one thing, they taste delicious. Yeah. Two, they're, I mean, they might hit your bait at 70 miles an hour. You know, it's uh, that that fish. I right, just get this and show you show you how it will spark your interest about catching a wahoo. All right, I'm trolling, high speed trolling, pulling a lure that was made probably in I don't know the 40s in Cape May, New Jersey. It's an old lure that dug out of somebody's somebody's uh, milk crate in their garage, but it still works. Great lure. And I'm pulling it at 16 miles an hour, high speed trolling. That's flying. 
there's some boats don't even do that you know we're up moving and this fish hits and I'm, i got him on an electric reel and i'm trolling at 80 meters behind the boat and i got you know multiple other lines out but this is my deep rod and when they when he went off the time period that i could that i could pull back on my motors to a, a safe troll speed you want to keep it in gear keep the line tight you don't want to you don't want to put it in neutral that's the worst thing you can do in this situation you want to keep the line tight put pull back my motors i'm going around six knots just enough and i walked back there to the reel and just that amount of time i could power down the motors walk back to the reel he was at 350 meters and i'm not i've heard i've heard, I've heard people talk about this okay i've heard people talk and i was like eh whatever you know bar stories they said you know my reel was smoking i'm like okay yeah dumping a buck of water whatever you know keep drinking guy i'm not kidding you there was smoke rising off of this reel i've never seen this before i've caught big fish but nothing to the speed nothing that could take 80 meters to 350 meters that I mean, there was from heat was rising off that reel we got him in it was the most Oh, was, we got it on video. I don't want to show anybody. It was the most ridiculous thing you've ever seen in your life. You know, we got, we, we got the fish in. It's a great story. But, I mean, we just looked like a bunch of chumps out there. With this, I mean, it was the biggest wahoo I'd ever seen. And well, we then just, you were like little kids when you got it to the oh, boat. Right? Oh, <laughs> no. I'm talking about grown men out there screaming at the top of your lungs, jumping it down, slapping, grabbing. Yeah, it was it was, it was an amazing experience because it's, there's, there's a certain type of skill that goes into a lot of things. But then when you catch a fish that size, it's a blessing. I'd rather be lucky than good all day. Oh, absolutely. They, they don't grow them that big every day. You know, like sometimes sometimes just, you know, stars line that did with that. And um, with that fish right there, I would say on the troll and blue water areas, nothing beats a wahoo to me because they're, they're like ghosts. You know, like nobody can really, really map them. There's guys that's really good, a lot better than me. I'm, I'll probably never be on their level. But they can tell you how to catch them, but they can't tell you how to catch them every day. They can tell you what you need to do to be ready when they're ready. And that mysteriousness of them will always draw me to them. And so when you're out there, I guess you're obviously not necessarily targeting Wahoo. Are you basically trolling for kings, or or is it further out? Are you talk, trolling for dolphin, or, or what? when you – when the wahoo smack your line, what do you usually really target? It's more common. Oh, when you're high speed trolling, yeah. that high speeds like I was talking about. If anything bites, you got about a ninety eight percent chance it's always going to be a wahoo because of that oh, okay. speed. When I you know when I power down and you know we got you know trolling you know seven to ten knots and we got all ballyhoo in the water and we got to troll it you know i got 11 rod spread out with my riggers and everything for mahi and you know tuna and everything else you you got a deep rod that you use to put wire on and when that goes off generally it's, it's one of your bigger mahi or if it's really smoking you stand a good chance of being a wahoo because everything else you're running monofilament leaders and stuff on these fish have incredible teeth that they can cut wire with it if it's you know smaller wire and um targeting them without wire is almost impossible it's been done um but everything everything on the surface usually you're working with is not a wahoo lure you got to pull them down with planers uh heavier trolling weights 
different things of that nature if you're wanting to look for target the wahoo if you're targeting wahoo you might fish all day and waste a lot of time so the best thing to do is to fish for wahoo while catching other fish and then once you find those other fish generally those wahoo are eating the fish that you're catching and that's where you're going to find them anyways gotcha so what's the biggest fish that's ever been landed on your boat I mean, honestly, it's, it would have to be Goliath because just because the pound to pound, you know, the density of that fish. I mean, they're Volkswagens. Cra- oh yeah, I mean, it's they're they're incredible. I mean, you know, I could tell you what the coolest fish is or whatever, but I mean, if you want to talk about weight, I mean, nothing beats them. Well, what's the coolest fish? Well, I would I, I'm gonna say that was man, yeah, because I, I just, you know, I could tell you, you know biggest sailfish and you know stuff like that's awesome biggest mahi i mean i i'm so broad-minded that i can tell you what the awesome the most the the coolest fish is what day you know what day you know right i love this job that much it's like what day did we catch? you know when you pick a day i'll tell you what the coolest fish is you know like you're talking about goliath today i had a had a group of guys went out they said we don't care that much about yeah, you know, they said they said we d- we don't really care about bringing fish in to eat. You know these guys. You know they're down from Ohio. We we just you know we want to hook big fish. I was like, deal makes yeah. You know, that's that's a fun day for me. You don't put a lot of pressure on me because I I, mean, I know how to hook big fish. Might not be what you want to catch, but at the end of the day you're gonna be sitting down and you're ready to go home. And um, we went out and put you know that's why I'm so late today. You know, for the people listening, it's really late at night right now. I was supposed to be here like two hours ago. But because because of about a nine-foot bull shark an hour and a half later, yeah, we made it in. And um, that's why we're here so late. But uh, we, 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 we caught a – I would say, you know, we can't weigh him. I'd say he was three, 300 plus Goliath today. Um, countless, incredibly big red snapper. And, uh, you know, their arms were jello. My job was done. (laughs) So you talk about that bull shark. How often do you lose, uh, I would say, a target species to a predator fish like that? You see it a lot when the guys are, like, inshore tarpon fishing. You'll get your reeling. It's great. You got a big tarpon, and then half of it's gone. Uh, It's increasing at a rapid rate. This staggering. Um. On the troll, you don't have to bother. It's not a big deal because you're on the surface. Most sharks are hunting on the bottom, unless you're talking about a mako shark, which only rises up to eat. But most of your shark issues is when you're reef fishing. Most sharks are reef sharks. Um, I would say if I'm anchored off on a hole, especially if there's a lot of red snapper there, because that's one of the most dominant and prevalent fish out there right now because of our conservation our conservation efforts. The changes, but it's sadly I would say almost thirty to forty percent of everything I hook gets eaten by a shark. Jeez, we were talking about that down in South Florida, the Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. They're they're actually talking about making some changes to how fish are caught down in the keys because so many of them are then lost to sharks, right? Guys are down there trying to catch Oh, you think we kill sharks fish? And just- <laughs> Holy. And we're, and, and 
Ah, oh, man. It's bad. There's some places like uh, you want to go, you know, go back to, you know, we're blessed to have a decent snapper season in the Gulf. You, I mean, you want, there's, there's some of them places you'll pull up there and, you know, you get three snapper in the boat and then you get bit. You better crank up and leave. They're about yeah. to kill everything. And if you do happen to get them up and say it's in, it's a illegal fish or whatever, when you release them, He's going to whack it. You watch him. I mean, they'll, they'll eat him. And uh, I don't know exactly what happened, if it's the bands on long lining, or I don't know what the story is. But something happened. Our shark populations are just boomed everywhere. It's just it's it's awful. To a certain extent, it's kind of like a good story because there was a lot of talk about sharks. And I guess in some parts of the world, there's still – they are imperiled, mm-hmm. you know, fending practices and things like that. But I, I guess there's everything in moderation. I know I have there, there has to be balance. Yeah. When I was, I don't really dive as much as I used to, but when I was a, in my twenties, I'm an old man now, I'm 50, but in my early twenties and we dive, it was a pretty rare thing to see a shark, mm-hmm. man, 20 years later, especially diving in the wintertime. Um, lemon sharks, not as many bulls, but yeah, bull sharks are becoming much more common. Uh, occasionally, big tiger shark. Um, but yeah, and, and so I, and that I haven't really been diving nearly as much in the last you know five to seven years. So I imagine it's just oh, you should do it. Yeah, take some blood pressure medicine. I already do. <laughs> <laughs> no, really, you know, most time, contrary to popular belief, um, you know, when you're shooting fish, it's a little different story. But even then, um, they're pretty. They're pretty skittish. I've only oh, got, I've only got, I don't like to belabor the, the story now, but I've only got one time that I was like, really like, oh boy, we got a problem here, and I did a bunch of stupid things. But um, well, I, I categorize sharks just just like dogs. It's the best way yeah. I can explain it to people. They look like that when they're running around the bottom. They look I, like I, dogs sniffing for food. I, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. and I and I can just about break down every type of shark. And yeah. tell you what type of dog it is. Like a tiger shark, I always says English bulldog. He just like moping around, drooling on stuff, chewing on stuff, and that's what he's slow and he'll bite anything. Well, talking about a bull shark, that's generally if you're gonna have an issue, it's gonna be a bull shark. Yeah. If you walk, if I walk in your backyard and you got any dog back there, and he looks me in the eye, and st- his hair stands up on his neck, and he stands his ground. Well, he stayed claim. Yeah, this is this is his place. And you better respect that, or something bad's gonna happen. If I jump in the water, swim up there, you know, to any reef, and I see a bull shark, he starts swimming around me. He drops his pectoral fins. When they drop those fins and, and hunch that back, that's when he, it's time to pucker. This is his spot. Yep. What I do when I'm diving is the first thing I do, especially if I'm holding a fish. If I see a shark, I like kamikaze right at him, hard as I can go. Yeah. And then we're about to figure it out in this moment. Who's dominant here? Now, if he turns at me, fair. I'll go back to my boat. I'm the guest here. Most of the time, they'll go off. Yeah. And uh, I learned that because you know, back when I was when I was in high school, I was a. Uh, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about my fishing from spear fishing. Because uh, if I couldn't figure out with a reeling rod, jump and learn with a spear gun, and I would learn what was living here. And they're like, okay, I need to target that because it lives at this certain spot. 
Well, I got really good at shooting cobia. Free shafted them? No, no, no. I was. Uh, I've seen it done, but those well, guys are badass, man. Well, you got to turn the lights off, or they're gone. Right, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I started out with a little, you know, just whatever gun I could find. He's dragging me around, and then you know I started made made a li- enough money to get a, a a gun with a reel on it, you know. So that really changed the game. So I could shoot one, he could pull the line out, and you know, I could fight him, whatever. But when I learned about that shark, I was in my heyday of killing the cobia back home, and there's a school of bait like National Geographic looking, just beautiful. You know, you could hear that, you know. You know, guy with the funny accent talking in the background. It's just beautiful. Sir David Attenborough. There you go, that guy. We all know his voice. And uh, you know, it's just moving like a big tornado. I'm like, I'm looking at it. It's like a mirage. I'm like, this is one of those moments I'm always going to remember. And I was thinking that in my head, like, no matter what, this is one of the most beautiful things we're ever going to see. It's only 14 foot of water. It's not much for us over there. That was a lot. But for most people in the world of free dive, that's literally their swimming pool. But I'm watching it, and I dive down, uh, you know, maybe six foot under the water, and I'm just hovering. And that big school of bait, there was there was Spanish mackerel rounding them up, and it was keeping them in that ball. And then a there was a school of cobia, like kind of legalish, and then there was one about forty five pounds, and I nailed him. You know, it's a rare shot to shoot a cobia and stone him. I did it, and I was like, sweet. And he's drifting down the bottom, you know. Like I never even pulled slack off of my string, and I was like, "He's done. He's done. Stoned." I just swim down to the bottom and just gently, like free divers should be doing, keep my heart rate low. I grab the fish and I'm just I'm looking up at that ball, and all of a sudden it just parts. I mean, just <laughs> it just it literally it just like whoosh, you can hear. I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. You you can you hear, hear it. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Because everything is so loud. Everything's so loud underneath the water. You, you don't realize until you're in the water how loud things can be. Yeah. But uh, it's so loud. And it, I, the, it parts, and a head comes out of it. And it's coming right at me. But it's going real slow. And it was, to date, the biggest bull shark I've ever seen in my life. I mean, his nose was as square as that table right there. Just incredible beast. And he's coming right at me. And I'm thinking... Well, this might be my time. You know, it's like, of all sharks other than a white shark or something, what do you don't want to run into? A big bull shark. Right. And uh, he looked at me. I could see, I could could tell he was looking right at me. And I'm holding the second biggest fish in the water right now was that cobia and him. Well, and he's seen me kill him, kill that fish stone dead, and I'm sitting there holding it without even fighting. And I felt like that shark respected me in a type of way. Like, he's he seen that, you know, like, I I kind of took over that situation. And, you know, he, he just swam off, never never to be seen again. Oh, you knew where you were, buddy. If you'd let that fish get away from you, you'd have seen him again. Right, absolutely. Yeah. But I, I got to thinking about it. I was like, maybe sharks are just like dogs. They have dominant areas. And if they think you're dominant there, they're going to leave you alone. But if you turn and run from them, like you turn and run from a dog, he's going to bite you. So ever since then, I've been going. I've just been keeping my eye on sharks, and they tell me if they're dominant in the area, and or or if I am, and then we make our decision from there. That was a pretty cool experience. I bet. You know, with new divers, if they see a shark, you ask them what kind of shark was it? Bull shark, bull shark. Yeah. Oh, every one of them. Every one of them is a bull shark. Um, 
until they actually see their full first bull shark. Because I, I was the same way. Was I was a young guy. Like, well, was that a bull shark? Was that a bull shark? Yeah. No, it's a lemon shark. No, it's a reef shark. And then you see a bull shark, and once you see it, because its dimensions are unmistakable. Once Ab- you, absolutely. Yeah, flat old yeah. head, big old bull, big towering. Once you know, you know. Yeah, you'll, oh, that's a bull shark. Yeah. Amazing. So we, <clears throat> we talked a lot about losing fish to sharks, and um, but I know you tend to lose fish to Goliath grouper fishing on the reefs. <laughs> and you catch those, you know. I'm not laughing at you, laughing with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What are your thoughts on the proposal to open a season on Glass Grouper that FWC's just come up with? I mean, it's a it's a great uh, conservation success story. Right? I, absolutely, I'm for it and I'm with them. But I, like I said earlier, it needs to be balanced. I, I know some. Uh, if you want, if, like I was talking about with the the red drum, the big breeder fish and stuff, you look at. That ecosystem is crucial to providing us with more, you know, stable fisheries. And I can show you some places back home where, you know, like the Big Bend area right there, all the way down Homosass and Clearwater, it's known to be a gag grouper sanctuary for breeder fish to come in close, real shallow, real, real shallow. I mean, and they're breeding and everything. And those areas that's holding those fish now – they're not just gags. They're inhabited with goliath. And those goliath, what do they eat? Everything that swims in front of them. And I believe that if 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 we if we are as fishermen, charter boats, recreational, commercial, if we're taking from the ocean and we're taking just as much as the law will let us because that's what people do. And then there's something like a dominant predator and also a dominant predator like a goliath grouper and if if we just let them do everything that they naturally do which they're going to breed and they're going to go i mean it's it, there's going to be a negative what i'm getting to there's going to be a negative pushback which i believe there already is because every piece of structure you can find these days is holding goliath grouper and not juveniles i'm, I'm talking like you know two three four hundred pound fish Oh, yeah, man. Some of those wrecks that are out there off New Smyrna, when we used to go chase flounder, um, it wasn't uncommon to see mm-hmm. two or three good-sized fish on one small like sailboat wreck. Well, when I say small, I mean 25-foot boat right. surrounded by a bunch of flatties and glass. I, I think there needs to be needs to be a proper studies done, and I think there needs to be a certain type of conservation in different areas that needs to be done uh, I hate to say control because you know nature needs to be nature but there's places where it's getting out of hand and it's hurting things you know if we are if we as humans are going to continue to fish and take from the ocean we have to be responsible and keeping the balance and things and I believe that that fishery is getting way out of balance, and it's uh, it's it's getting to be where there's there's a, there's some destruction in some areas, and in some areas where it doesn't need to be touched. There's there where it's healthy. If and, you know if if the state goes drops a tugboat somewhere, and that tugboat's not natural, 
there probably needs to be a Goliath there, you know, in some way to keep, you know, to be like the boss hog there. This, he's he's keeping the balance of an unnatural thing. I'm not, you know, I think they have a place, but I believe they're 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 getting to be a little bit much. I was reading FWC. We should put it in the show notes. FWC's got a great presentation on Goliaths and and what some of the struggles are and they they do say that it needs to be regulated differently from other fisheries because once they get on a a piece of structure they don't leave nope they don't range um so they are somewhat easy to target they have places that they when they breed where fish that's when they will move they'll come all the way down from georgia Mm-hmm. to travel hundreds of miles to go back to their breeding ground and they all pile up on each other. So it makes them easy to target. And then another part, I guess, is they are pretty susceptible to red tide. So you can have really healthy fish, just white red tide, wipe them out. And the other part was cold. Like we, if we have a really good cold snap that I guess, you know, it takes a lot to drop the ocean several degrees mm-hmm. But once it gets below a certain thing, I guess they, they just do not tolerate cold water. And you can have massive die-offs in the Goliath grouper population just from a, a weather event. So, I, I, have, I have a little uh, on, on the weather topic. Okay? Mm-hmm. I've always believed that because it's, you can't get away from the science on that. But what I can't get away from in nature is seeing how adaptable – everything is i mean with the okeechobee fish kills this happened it's just absolutely horrible killed everything and it and it impacted us as fishermen more than other than the fish more than anything else and with that in north florida i know old timers 80 years old that has never seen a snook there and we're catching snook in taylor county tell me why it ain't from global warming I know people's caught bonefish and cast nets. They're moving. I seen I seen parrotfish. Up in the up in up up there in Taylor County. Wow. That's crazy. Now it's, it's not, almost like they're migrating away from It's like they it's like they ran. It was in the exact same time when when all the Okeechobee fish kills happened. Well what happened, you know, it gets cold up there. You know, it freezes in North Florida. I mean it gets it it gets dangerously cold for warm weather species well with us talking about the mullet being a huge staple in our community in the big bend area from back home you know we catch them in the summertime in the wintertime everything during run season so what we do they push up in the rivers to stay warm we're shining lights catching mullets what did i start noticing i started noticing those fish that die from the cold are thriving in these warm water places seeking haven and they're adapting to cold weather places which every book you read says not possible for that type of fish to adapt in those in those situations and it's a good thing they're adapting and it's pretty cool because i mean we're starting to catch more different species up there than we've ever caught and i was there ain't no telling us what nature's going to show us next because, you know, as much destruction as humanity is doing to our oceans and land, you know, they got to figure out their place here, and I think they're doing a good job at it. it. I mean, 
you talk about going up in the in the uh, rivers. They, that's as simple as following the food. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. if if you have that fish that uh, otherwise wouldn't be there, it's found something to eat, um, and then it wants to stay with what it found to eat. Mm-hmm. So it follows it. Up the river, and then yeah. you have all these natural springs that flow out into the Gulf and create some warmer water, even at the mouth of the of the river that flows out. Because like the, the Homosassa River is really not all that long; it's it's fairly short. So you're still keeping a lot of that water temperature, even coming right out into the Gulf of Mexico. Right. So <clears throat> they can get up in that more of a constant temperature. Works like a thermostat. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Keeps it a certain degree. Those, those fish truly do adapt because i mean like we we got a lake up here called lake woodruff and we are pff, I, and st john's runs right through it and we're the, i don't know how many miles from saltwater on st john's there but i was bow fishing one night out on lake woodruff and come across just a massive bull red mm-hmm. and i was like we are nowhere near salt water, and you got some massive bull red up here. I don't know if those fish are born into that situation, and they adapt, and they just that becomes home to them. But up in North Carolina, when I was you know, stationed in Lejeune, we were bass fishing like eight miles from the ocean. There's just fish popping everywhere, and we're throwing everything we got at them, and, and just cannot. I mean, we're like a bunch of chumps out there. Could not catch nothing. Beautiful sunset, everything's perfect. And on a little uh, that zoom speed crawl, you know, the infamous speed crawl. My buddy, buddy from Mississippi throws two lures, that one and a storm shadow swim bait, and he was throwing them too. And all of a sudden, he hooks a fish that was ba- dragged buried down because he's bass fishing. You know, he's either turning a break. And he's fighting this fish, and he's running back and forth, left and right. I'm thinking he's got a world record bass on right here in New River, which no big fish come out of. And you know, I got a net, and it's the sunset, and we can't really see, and it rolls up there, and it's a, it's a red drum. I could not believe it. I said, this fish is lost. And come to find out, every one of those fish that we were seeing was all red drum, and they pushed way up in that river, and they were thriving, absolutely yeah. thriving in there. And I, I would have bet money. There wasn't nothing like that there. Because, you know, I had cat hooks set right beside it. And we were pulling cat hooks. Well, I mean, if they can put uh, redfish and largemouth bass together in the fish tank at Bass yeah, Pro bass Shop. Pro, yeah, <laughs> you yeah, <know>? right. <laughs> Something's going on. Right. There's a, there's a trick to it in there somewhere. So, correct me if I'm wrong, but the uh, the people coming out on your boat, they fish under your captain's license. They don't necessarily have to have a fishing license in the state of Florida. The state of Florida, loving our tourists the way we do, um, states that anybody that's on my vessel falls under my. It's not. It's not our Coast Guard license. It's our. It's it's a license through the FWC. Basically, I pay for them every year. Right. They, um, so anybody that steps on my boat, they. They don't need any type of license, and that's not every state. So don't think you can go to Louisiana and not 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 get a a one day license to go out on a charter. But the state of Florida is very friendly to our tourists, and we are the sport fishing capital of the world. 
That's what they say. And uh, so I have a theory bounce around in my head, and I, and I want to know your opinion as a um, a fishing guide. Because we have so many people that come from out of state to fish in the state of Florida, um, the the state pulls federal funding for Pittman Robertson and Dingle Johnson uh, based on the amount of license sales Correct. in the state. Do you think it would hurt the fishing industry in the state to make those people make your guests who, so we'll say out of state people who otherwise wouldn't have a Florida fishing license, mm-hmm. pay a nominal fee, we'll say six bucks, put it like a dollar over what it costs for processing. Mm-hmm. So the state makes one whole dollar. Do you think it would it would hurt the industry to make those people pay six bucks so that when the state goes to look for Pittman Robertson funding for conservation and other mm-hmm. things throughout the state to put all those that stuff into effect, you now have the actual numbers of people that fish here versus uh, what your the, the people that aren't getting counted because they don't have to buy a license. Right. Honestly, I don't think it would affect it at all. I think. Uh, you would have a lot of people that didn't know any better and that, that that's that's gonna be a problem no matter what i mean just simple ignorance but um i don't think it would affect it at all because most of these people that are coming down from out of state i mean they're showing up on my boat with a fresh you know express pass from disney right <laughs> you know or you know they're blowing through tolls and you know just got a $150 bar tab and you know like that I don't think that extra four bucks for I don't think it would matter at all because most people that's a big question I have I mean locals know but you know like hey do we need to get a fishing license it's not like oh man I gotta buy it you know it's like do we need it before we step on the boats no problem just let me know if we need it right I don't I, w- I don't think it would affect it at all and I, I see the same thing because I've we have not on actually ever on the air before talked about this, but not only do we have a big fishing industry here, but we have a a big, uh, we have a lot of old people. Mm -hmm. And if you're a Florida resident and you're over 65, you no longer have to buy a fishing or hunting license anymore. Correct. Which is great. Right. I, I look forward to that day to an extent because once I reach 65 and I no longer need that fishing license, I no longer count towards Pittman and Robertson funding or Dingle Johnson. Um, so on the same hand, you ask those again, the 65 and older, now you pay a nominal fee of $6 mm-hmm. for a annual sportsman's license. You pay just enough to cover processing and maybe a dollar more. Right. That way your name can go, you know, you can count as a, as a number to draw more Pittman Robertson and Dingle Johnson funding from the federal government. So... And I think that's something we're missing out on. And it pains me because we have a lot of conservation issues throughout the state. And there's only so much money. But we could get more if right. we would just do that. And it's not a lot to ask. I mean, I, I could I could walk around, get, stop at every dollar general you see and walk to the parking lot. You can find five bucks in a matter of a day or two. And that, and that would be, I mean, if there was a way... Forgive me for not understanding how it all works, but if there was a way that we could keep every penny of that towards the right thing, I think everybody would be for it. What everybody's worried about is where's your money going. 
So the yeah. Pittman Robertson Dingle Johnson funding is an excise tax that goes on to Pittman and Robertson goes on to uh, hunting equipment, guns, ammo, mm-hmm. all that good stuff, right? It's, it's a, a pre-tax. It's a pre-tax. Yeah. You don't ever see, you don't see it at the store. They tax the manufacturer when they make that stuff. Uh, Dingle Johnson is the exact same thing, but it's for fishing equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, boat fuel. That's why part of the reason boat fuel is more expensive. Right. If you buy it at a dock. Um, but the federal government takes all those funds in, and then they look at the license sales out the states, and they distribute it that way. And there's only so many things that the funding can be spent on. Excuse me. Um, they can't spend it on law enforcement. They can't. It has to be spent. There's certain categories and where they can spend that stuff. And R three is actually one that's just come up uh, here recently. Been added as another category where they can spend that money. But the more license sales you have, the more money you get in return because you have those. You have more sportsmen and women in your state. Therefore, you need more funding to fund these programs and projects and stuff like that for those sportsmen and women. I think that the licensure, I think that your licensure is what covers your administration and your law enforcement. Correct. Because I think yeah. those are exempt from the Pittman-Robertson. You know, you can build gun ranges with it, which makes sense because all the ammunition that gets sold. Right. But the rest all goes into conservation, if I'm not mistaken. I, w- I wish there was more control of, you know, like, we had more of a hand in what that money was going to in our conservation efforts because most people are just clueless of it. I mean, who wants to vote in having their money, you know, more paying more money for something if they don't even know exactly what's happening? And Amendment one. <laughs> right. Well, that's the beauty of the Pittman-Robertson and Dingle-Johnson Act is they've been in, in, in on the books for so long Nobody even knows it really exists anymore. The right. reason that we're we are able to come sit here in the central state of Florida and slam wood ducks, Pittman Robertson. Mm-hmm. You know the reason you're seeing these uh, Goliath Grouper make such a comeback, Dingle Johnson. Right. All that money that's coming in there, that that stuff. A lot of that money's going to stuff like that. Oh, how about yeah, the duck population in general. Yeah. A lot of that ducks, is administered turkeys, through elk, DU deer. And stuff or the yeah. National Wild Turkey Federation. But a lot of that funding comes right through there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, coming back to that, like, nominal fee, you think at what these people are, like, spending all this money to travel, right? And then whatever they're going to pay for a charter, is it really going to hurt them to pay $6? I mean, I was going to say, well, once I get to that point of if I'm going to spend that much money and to do all of this to travel, a vacation, everything. And if somebody's like, hey, this is going to cost you six bucks, I'm like, if six dollars. If okay. you brought your own uh, jug of water and drank that at Disney World while you were down here, you could afford to buy <laughs> yeah. several non-resident yeah. fishing licenses. <laughs> but, yeah, that's, I digress. But, uh, so, let's hear some of these stories. What is the, what is the roughest day you've ever had on the water? Get caught in a storm, <laughs> you know. Every time we take Jordan's boat out, seems it like we break down. down a lot. You know, <laughs> the worst moment and most exciting time I've ever stepped on a vessel, and in this moment, you're talking about the roughest. And you know, like I have to break this down as the waves were maybe two inches high. And, it, you know, 
and at this moment, it was complete terror. But you know why the waves were that high? It was because of the amount of wind that was blowing. And I was coming in. This is I, I was fishing up in Camp Lejeune when I was stationed up there. It's where I started learning about the Atlantic. And back home in the Gulf, your storms build on the water. Because storms chase heat. That's what they need to work. That's how weather works. It works off cooler and hotter temperatures. Well, storms out there, these heat builds on the water because the Gulf is hot. The Atlantic, the Atlantic's cold. The land is hot. So where does the storms build? On the shoreline. Well, New River Inlet, which is a very treacherous inlet that people don't even talk about because people don't go through it up, up in Camp Lejeune. Well, we were coming in that inlet, just broke the inlet. There's a bad storm. You can see it, and there's a little hail started hitting the boat. And I was with these uh, five older retired Marines, and he's driving his boat. It's 32-foot, can't remember, the just some old center console had twin uh, Honda 225s on it. We break the inlet, get past the first you know, S-curves get through the sandbars and we get to the, the intersection, the intercoastal waterway, and the hail starts getting bigger. And then it, then there, it starts raining to the point where it's really hard to see. And he powers down the boat a little bit. And we're just like kind of a bogging plane. Anybody that's ever let down on motors knows it just really starts pushing like a snowplow. And in that rain, we start seeing just like, you start seeing just, you know, there's boats. And what it was, it was people was like, they were, they were freaking out because the storm was getting so bad. It was just like, you know, it hit us all of a sudden. And you start seeing boats and, you know, we're trying to figure out what's going on. Can't see anything, hard to navigate. And these guys were pretty incompetent, what they were doing. And I could see right on probably, I want to say 10 o'clock off the port bow, which people that don't know understand, that's the left side of your boat. I could see it looked like an oil slick, almost white, greasy looking, coming to me. And I was like, what is this? You know, it's the first time I experienced something of this nature. And come to find out that slick was wind coming across there in that storm. And when it hit our boat, it hit us in a broad size that he was starting to turn away from because he didn't know what it was. And it caught that T-top like a sail. And it Ooh. sounded just like one of the, the old pirate ships. And, you know, just like, you know, the creaking and groaning in old movies. Well, it said, like that. And it, we capsized 90 degrees. It rolled us. You left, left, you know, the port engines out of the water. You could hear it screaming. And this guy, he's color code black. Uh, you know, that, that's when, that's in the Marine Corps, that's what we call when somebody is unresponsive. He, you're scream, I'm screaming at this guy's face. We're taking on water. You know, the boat, you know, it's a sealed off boat. So we're not just like plunging to the bottom. But we're, I mean, it's it's knee deep in the boat right now. It washed us, it washed us 90 degrees, and then we washed back probably in like a 45 degree angle, still taking water over the stern. The right motor is nearby, completely underwater, and the wind is it's so it's it's to the point where you can't stand. I don't know how fast this wind was blowing, but it was unbelievably awful. And this guy is stuck to the steering wheel, you know, like sitting in like a 45 degree angle, more than that, and he's his eyes just blaring wide open i'm screaming at the top of my lungs in his face trying to get him to react to the situation nothing he i mean he is absolutely he has no idea that i'm in the world and i physically knock him off the wheel 
And when I did, I spun the motors, you know, hard to hard left, and I gave both throttles everything you could get. And we just kind of shot us out of that hole, and you know, because we're still taking on water going down, and put the nose of the boat into the, you know, into the wind, which you know, your your aerodynamic then you can take that wind with the bat, with the nose into it. The problem with it was we were broadsided when the wind hit us, and we couldn't, you know, it just took all of us out of you know just all out of sorts and uh you know the villages and self-bailing took over then and um that was by far the roughest sounds like you guys got caught in what's called a microburst based on your description of hail and everything else mm-hmm. and all of a sudden just like hurricane force winds just come out of nowhere right it's actually a giant downdraft that comes down and when it hits it just that was the best way i kill planes and everything that. else yeah they're bad yeah i, I thought i thought uh I thought Florida had bad weather until I moved to Camp Lejeune. The Marine Corps is notorious for buying, you know, buying up land that is uninhabitable for human consumption. You know, like <laughs> that's why they got twenty nine palms. Uh, but like Jacksonville, North Carolina is the armpit of the Carolinas. It's just stagnant and nasty, and that heat coming out of that New River just breeds those storms. And uh, and I, I, that was the most incredible thing. I've, I've seen bad wind out there before where where it snatched our anchor line and almost, you know, like it, it just come out of nowhere, hit us broadside like that, but it wasn't nothing to that magnitude. And uh, I've seen it in the Atlantic. In the, Atlantic. the problem is you could, you could be in 50-foot seas if you got waves that's far enough apart your boat and go through it. You know, it's just you're just rolling on big clouds then. But when you got really tight waves, when your stern and your bows in waves at the same time, you know that's when it starts getting dangerous. And uh, I've I've seen about eight footers like over my cabin that's really tight, and then it's like you need to go home. You know, eight footers just really tight when you got like four second intervals, and that's talking from wave top to wave top. It takes four seconds before the next wave hits you, and you know that's you really need to get get out of there. One of the most beautiful days I've ever seen was after a hurricane in North Carolina, and we was in 12-foot seas. Absolutely the most beautiful thing ever. Big, it's like, it, was like, it was like you took a big carpet and, like, flushed it, you know, big rolling waves. And they were, like, light pole to light pole apart. And it was just, we were just whacking the fish, too. They were biting behind that storm because it stirred the bottom up. And, you know, it's, it's really hard to explain anything in the ocean with any type of detail because i mean well there's is there's so much detail you can't just be like Bleh, there it is right you know, it's like you really just got to dig into it I mean, there's just so much going on out there and that's why i love it it's just nothing nature like it. nature at its wildest you can and you can never tame the ocean yeah it will gobble you up and beat you every day in some way so what's the most memorable trip you've guided so far Hmm. I wasn't ready for that one. Let's see. That hasn't happened yet because I haven't gone out with you. That's right. One, you know, <laughs> yeah. Sun up to sundown, never been a pole. <laughs> <laughs> other, other than, other, other than like crazy events. One of the coolest days I've ever seen on the water was actually back home when I was younger. Uh, I guess it wasn't that long ago, but uh, we caught, we limited out on sea trout, limited out on red drum, caught a two-man limit of pompano, 
a two-man limited gag grouper and three legal cobia in one day in a bay boat. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> I don't know what kind of slam that is, but y'all need to give them old boys on the boat a, a ribbon. That's the dinner yeah. slam is what that yeah, is. Yeah, we, we'd, <laughs> we'd pull up there, and we'd just hammering fish. And I'm like, this is great. This is great, guys. And, you know, everybody's like, yeah, yeah, slapping them. Like, I'm not telling them this is not normal. You know, and I was just like, well, let's go try this now. You know, because every, every day you're trying something to see what the see what the ocean's going to give you. You know, you're not taking. It's you're going to receive what the what the ocean's going to give you. And every day, I mean, every time I pull up there, it was just like best case scenario, best case scenario. I'm like, this is just one for the books. You know, every one of those fish. It's not like we're going out there and you know, putting twenty kingfish in the boat. Where it's like this is awesome. They're fun to catch, but they're not the best to eat. They're good smoke. It's a lifetime right. supply right there, man. <laughs> right, right, Ex- exactly, exactly. You're just like, hey, buddy, you want some kingfish? But every one of those fish are just remarkable. You know, er- every one of those fish is just del- absolute delicious. And that was that was a extremely good day. I never be able to top that. Yeah, that's going to be really hard to top that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's tough. That's one of those stories. that's almost like I don't want to like talk about it too much because it's like hard to believe. Like that guy's full of crap. <laughs> you know, like, you, like, no, all right, all right. Okay, you caught a cobia. Cool, cool, cool. Right, we caught two. Awesome. Oh, you caught limited gag grouper with limits of sea trout. And you're like, no, this didn't happen. This didn't happen. Yeah, yeah, because you're you're inshore and then you're offshore. Mm-hmm. Um, it just seemed because you had to cover a lot of ground. But well, the, th- the thing is, my my papa, he was. You know, I was talking about him earlier. In, incredible tactician when it comes to learning things when he shouldn't have been learning it out there. He uh, and there's I got a laundry list of reasons why he was this way, but he drove a big boat at a young age, learned a lot about offshore deep water fishing, and then he, you know, didn't have that big boat anymore. He had smaller boats. So what he had, he loved the offshore fishing, so he learned how to catch those grouper up close. And it's he spent years of his life learning how to catch those fish in those shallow waters that you could get to with a bay boat. You know, now granted it would be, you know, six, seven, you know, six, seven miles offshore, but for us over there that's only, you know, sixteen, seventeen foot of water. And because of that and that knowledge learned from him at a young age, I was able to capitalize on all those situations that would just happen to just stars lined up. And I was catching them on, you know, like, 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 tri- like trout tackle, you know, 12 pound yeah. power pro taking pinfish and, you know, putting a split shot up on a fluorocarbon leader and drifting it over the reef, you know, you know, 10 foot off the bottom. So hopefully he would get tired before he got to the rock. Cause I couldn't turn him a 12 pound test. And it's like everything, everything lined up, you know, like he was on the right side of the reef and we got him in, you know, it's just, we were just like, let's try this, let's try this, and just everything worked out. So it was an awesome day. Can't beat that. No. Yeah. I put William on a nice redfish in uh, Oak Hill, and he shit the bed and lost it. Yeah. <laughs> I got tangled up in his, in his uh, motor. No mm-hmm. catwalks on that boat and the little oh, dog man. running around. Fishing poles. Don't blame it on the dog. And that, that big wahoo I was talking about earlier. Yeah. In that video that I'm going to bury where nobody can watch it we'll see it after this podcast oh, oh man anyways uh i had a guy that we didn't i you know 
he was so big that I had I had to come off the wheel. I had I had to get back there and help. And I was trying. I had a guy on the wheel. And it, when trolling, you know, you got to keep that pressure on the fish with the motors. You got to keep it in gear. And he needed to turn the wheel because the fish started turning into the props. Just told me, and this fish jammed into my motor. He ran into my motor. And I was like, it's over. It's over. Biggest wall I've ever seen in my life. It's over right here. And then next thing would happen, like it's over, it's over. And like when you said motors, it just oh man, it gave me like a nightmare in my head. <laughs> and then and then the, my buddy gaff, he gaffs the fish, and the gaff comes out of him halfway up the end of the boat. And I got him on a four hundred pound steel cable. You know, if, if if the hook's in there, you know, it's pretty, you got him. The gaff comes out, and I just like shamu him over the side of the boat, and I just like slide him in with the leader. <laughs> just what a what a ridiculous thing i claim to be a halfway professional that was the most ridiculous thing ever in the box yeah, oh, at that in the point box. at that point it was just like nope not gonna happen not gonna lose it not uh, today every yeah. second of that battle i was like this is gonna go wrong this is gonna go wrong this summer i was fishing in uh saint joe bay and i just had a great morning went out was hardly out any time at all Hit uh, five, I think it was five, four. I forget what the limit was, but had nice, I mean, nice trout, you know, 18-inch trout and um, big fat redfish, which is where I was fishing. You can catch redfish, but you don't expect it. Where, where were you at? St. Joe Bay up in... Uh, uh, Gulf County. Yeah, Gulf County. Thank yeah, you. yeah. And all happy and proud of myself, pulled up to the boat dock, and got a, just didn't want to have to make two trips out of the boat and had it all tied up. But trying to, you have to pull yourself into the dock so that way the wind will blow you away a little bit so you don't bang into it. Sure enough, man, I fat-footed coming off of the thing. And what's the fish that I dump? Redfish. <laughs> Bloop! Oh, I was like, oh, man. You know, just, yeah, I was, they, I was so can... proud of myself. And then dunderhead. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, a red drum make a, those bass fishermen have to release all their bass after the tournaments and yeah, make them proud because they'll live in a box. You can put them on ice, and four hours later, they're still breathing. That's a tough fish. Yeah. Incredible. They got a grouper that way. I mean, well, that, there's one more in St. Joe Bay, thanks to That's me. right. <laughs> he's He's got a whiteboard, PowerPoints. He's like, all right, when this bait comes by, you know, I met this guy. He's up there at the ramp. You know, yeah. Don't bite this. You know, he's teaching everybody. Making yeah. making it harder for the rest of us, man. I was already tasting the you know, fish on a half shell, man. I love fishing like the lagoon, but there's just something to me about fishing Port St. Joe Bay that I just, I'll make the trip. I don't care. I love it up there. I love to fish it. I've never been. Oh. It's like St. Vincent Island. I will draw that tag one day. Oh, for the sandbar, sandbar? hunt? Yeah. You yeah. can get the whitetail pretty easy, but well, see here. Here's the thing, though, with the sandbar hunt, they already go ahead and like put your fishing time into the tag draw because you got to stop hunting at three o'clock. You can't afternoon hunt for sandbar. Do Don't you? think that I won't take my own boat over there just so I can fish after the hunt. But so you get to take a boat out, you can't fish pa- or you can't hunt past three. So what do you do? <laughs> Let's go fishing. All right, explain explain this to. Someone like me has no idea what what is a sandbar. The sandbar, sandbar deer oh, is the uh, third largest 
deer species second to elk and uh, moose. They are not native to Florida. The uh, St. Vincent Island was a private property at one point, mm-hmm. and the gentleman that owned it released them onto the island. So is it like a fallow deer? It or looks like an elk. looks like an elk with a smaller rack. They don't grow why like am, a big six by this? six rack. Yeah, you, you, there's a you can put in for a, a lottery draw every year. I think it's what twenty five bucks, twenty seven bucks. Yeah, um, they usually give out about a hundred ninety to a hundred permits, and they usually only kill about between seven to ten of them. I'm so removed on all the tag draws and quote. I'm still chasing tail on this. That's a pay to play draw too. You you yeah. pay to you pay to apply even if you don't draw. <clears throat> yeah. But that's the funny right. thing is and I haven't done it, but talking to guys that have gone is despite the fact that they're huge and the island's not that big, they've just figured out how to get into the deepest nasty and they'll hunker down until everybody's gone. Well they actually right. have mm-hmm. a second set of nostrils further up their nose so that they can dip their head down into the water and eat aquatic vegetation out of the swamp and still breathe while they're doing it hmm. they're they're crazy animals they're uh southeast asia um new zealand and australia i think well if they got to new zealand they brought yeah. them there by boat they're right. some kind of like uh was it red wolves there you so you have sandbar deer red wolves which was uh something that was brought out there white-tailed deer and pigs raccoons a lot of snakes um, but originally they had zebras, kudu, all kinds of crazy stuff. But after that, that property went and died off. Um, he, you know, went into public hands. A lot of those animals died off. The only thing that's left out there is the sandbar deer, white-tailed deer, red wolves. And so you can go out, you can get your, you can draw a white-tail tag. Um, you can, and draw the sandbar tags. Uh, you can't, there's no vehicles on the island except for the National Forest Service. You have to go out by boat. And then everything else is by bike or by foot. If you kill a sandbar deer, you have to drag it out to one of the main roads where the forest vehicles uh, patrol. They'll pick you up, take you back to the check station. So you don't have to drag that beast all the way back to the check station. You still have to drag it. However, you still have to drag like a 300 plus pound deer. However far. You can't can't pack it out. You can't quarter them up like you do elk or anything else. Moose, caribou, whatever. I don't believe so because they want to be able to uh because they want to study in a way yeah mm-hmm. makes sense right so you got your work cut out for you you definitely do game on but they they i mean you say that but they patrol they patrol a lot of the roads in most of the places you don't have to go more than a couple hundred yards but yeah I mean, so if, if you look at the, yeah, if you look at the map it, it's set up in blocks yeah so well in, any animal of that magnitude is going to be you know focusing on roadways trails you know hog trails hog roots any type of flats i mean they're our our woods are too dense for an animal of that size to just you know they're anywhere. i wonder if the forest service has winches you know like we we're up in maine and those guys are out running that timber but all those guys got monster winches in the back of their truck and cable so they can go haul they'll literally haul a moose to the road from a thousand yards out but i'm not kidding man just a ton of cables in the back of a truck but I, I gotta. Th- there's no way because even if you gutted that thing, it's still got to be two bills. Yeah. That's a lot to haul. That's why you put it in as a uh, a permit for a party. I guess. Yeah. 
And so the nice thing about you, you talk about the party permit is if, you know, the the four of us here, we're in a party together and you drew the tag, we're all going, baby. Yeah. 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 So. It's nice. But it's they draw I, less parties and they draw individuals because of, you know. If you still you get one, preference you get points out of Yeah. So. Yeah. Tell you what, though, that would be a pretty good hunt, whether it's Whitetail or Sandbar. Only because there's all kinds of stuff that run that channel between St. Vincent's Island and Indian Pass. I don't know if in the wintertime if the tarpon are still running, but um, just you never know what you're going to catch in there. I'd be willing to put in for Whitetail just to learn the island. Yeah. Well, you can go out there and hike it. Yeah. E-bike it. (laughs) That's Yeah. It's big enough island. You ain't going to cover much by foot. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot, a lot. Well, go ahead and wrap yeah. this up. At the end of every episode, we'd like to do a segment called the Under Pressure Outdoors Tip of the Week. William, you got something for us to lead us off? Man, I'm too <laughs> long-winded for just a tip. All right, if I, if, I had to, if I had to ever give a tip to anybody, it's just chase your dreams. I'm, I'm so new in this, I don't, you know, I don't even really belong here in this you know like talking to y'all right now but every day i wake up i absolutely love my job and i can sit here for hours telling you all the other jobs that i've worked from military to orange nurseries working oil refineries paper mills welding i mean just going list after list after list and i would do it and i would get good at it and i would say you know what this is not where my life needs to be and i would move on don't settle Go find out what you love to do, and I know that I've found what I love to do. You know, and that's real evident because, like I said earlier, I I had the pleasure of fishing with William, and it's, you know, after you, you you've gone out with, you know, several guys or whatever, and then you come across the ones that are just, no, the day yeah, it's almost like they're mad that you're on the boat with them, but like fishing with William. If something like if you do something like slightly wrong or something, it's not like he's not mad at you. He's like, hey, let me teach you how to do this the proper way, or like, hey, let me help you with this here. Like he actually like makes you feel like you are his friend on that boat. Like he he wants you to come off of his charter knowing so much more than you. And, and went see, on that's that's not put on. Like I I I I enjoy that. I mean I. What is the purpose of knowing anything if you're not willing to teach somebody? Yeah. I mean, ser- seriously. I oh, mean, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I, the basis of everything I know is because all those old men that I used to listen to, listen to their stories, just sitting there starry-eyed around a campfire, whatever, you know, like, you know, a mental logbook, just learning everything I possibly could. And without them... I would be a lifetime behind where I am now. I wouldn't, you know, I would just be, you know, kicking rocks. You know, just, if if you know something and you can help somebody else out while doing it, don't be greedy or stingy. I mean, at the end of the day, you'll, you'll find happiness in helping other, someone else out and teaching them things and helping them better their own life. Absolutely. So I would say... <clears throat> where your kill switch not only can it save your life it can save somebody else's i've had it 
saved my hind end more than once running a little 12 foot john boat in some of the little rivers the coastal rivers around southeast georgia you you never know bad things can happen and normally do within an instant and you fall down you didn't have to fall out of the boat but you fall down from the helm and <clears throat> you're in a tight spot and next thing you know you're in a whole lot whole lot worse off than if you'd have just been wearing that kill switch that would shut the motors off right yeah fall I've out seen... of the boat and you could be <laughs> under it yeah under it, it uh, yeah. yeah almost yeah no you were under it was i yeah remember the skiff oh i, remember I said the skiff. hey yeah don't face forward because this thing we used to have a carolina skiff is it what j16 yeah center console and i had a nice seat up on the front but the problem with that skiff was that if you ran it, it was a, it had a 48 Johnson on it. But if you ran it at complete full throttle, it was no telling when it was going to down to idle. I don't know. I mean, you oh. could pull it just a hair. Oh. Yeah. You could pull it at just a hair off of full throttle and it'd run fine all day. And I told him, I said, hey, don't face forward. We're running across the lake because there's no telling if this thing's going to just shut off. He's like, nah, we'll be all right. Next thing you know, I'd had, he's, a, yeah. I'd had a few of these. I was home on leave. Uh, he's facing forward. Boat shuts off. He goes off the front. Luckily, my first reaction was to yank it down into neutral real quick. And I coasted over top of him. And then I turn around to look back, and he's standing in waist-deep water. Oof. Yeah, I got lucky. I was like, that would have been really bad. Yeah, man, we calling you Stumpy. <laughs> yeah, or worse. Yeah, you wouldn't Dead. be calling me anything at all. And I, and also, if in that situation, if you don't listen to what he just said, and you do not wear your kill switch, and your boat is running around in a death circle, swim away from it. Yeah, <laughs> don't you're not try gonna catch it. it. No, <laughs> don't try to stop it. The Coast Guard FWC had come along, toss a rope in the prop. That's how they're gonna stop it. It might tear your motor up, but if you get in there, it's going to, that motor's going to tear you up. Yeah, it's probably going to be your last time you try to catch a boat. Yeah. So I don't care how embarrassed you are. Let it run, I guess. Yeah. Let it go. I've hey. seen a guy try to be a hot shot in a service track rig and come. He had a square chine boat. Come sl- sliding into a group of people. And his boat hopped once, hopped twice. Third time, that far side caught and just boom, slung mm. him out of the boat. Now, he wasn't as wearing his kill switch, but luckily we were in real shallow water, so that prop caught bottom when he fell out and it shut the motor off because it just bogged it down. But yeah, he got lucky. Yeah. Mm. What do y'all got? Oh, I forgot mine. Oh, no. <clears throat> so we were talking about like inclement weather earlier. Always watch your weather. I mean, you you can wake up in the morning, and if you're going to go fishing, you can wake up in the morning and go, ooh, that's going to be real bad. I probably shouldn't go. Or you got to go, man, storms are going to come in at 4 o'clock. I need to be off the water at 3. But I'm a weekend warrior. It's the <laughs> only time I have to fish. Well, that's why you watch and say, hey, it's going to come in at 4. I need to be off at 3. Yeah, it's not worth it. No, no, f- no fish is worth your not life. Not at all. Especially, I like... See, I see it every day. Yeah, having fish in the lagoon, there's a lot of times, especially in the lagoon, where... It could be a beautiful day, and then out of nowhere, boom, nasty storm rolls in, and the lagoon is so shallow that it just gets it gets nasty quick. What do you got, Jim? 
I'm gonna put on my other job hat here. My 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 make a living job on my certified financial planner. I I listen to people all the time talk about things I'd love to do in the future or woulda coulda shit all this other stuff. And you know they they've got all these dreams they'd like to do, whether it be a hunting trip, fishing trip, or even retire. But they're not doing anything about it. And part of the reason for that is is it's tough to be disciplined and I'm not knocking anybody because this is a human behavior that we all struggle with. So my, my big hot tip about how to do these things and how to create an easy, repeatable, systematic process is everybody's running their life out of one bank or another. Just go to a different bank, open up a checking account or a savings account. Checking's easy. You don't need the checks you don't need the ATM card or any of the jazz. Just open up a check at a bank you don't run the rest of your life out of. Take that down to a human resources person, because most everybody's got direct deposit these days, and just say, go take whatever. I mean, I'd love it to be 15%, but take 2%, 3%, 5% out of every one of my checks and go send it to that other bank I don't run the rest of my life out of, and then just take the rest, the 95%, and put it in your day-to-day. Right, you'll get used to that. All kinds of behavioral economics behind this. You'll get used to that within about three pay cycles. Whether you get paid weekly, monthly, doesn't matter. Three pay cycles will be like you never gave up that money. But because it's in another bank account that you don't run the rest of your life out of, and because if something goes south, you actually have to drive your butt over there and stand in line and talk to the teller and get it out, that money is sticky. So after a while, lo and behold, you've got the money for that new boat or that vacation, right? And if and it's once you do that discipline, it's also easy to say, hey, I started at 5%, next year make it 6 next year make it 7 especially as you're getting raises, right? And in, in my professional life, I call that a wealth coordination account. So you can start running your hopes and dreams out of there or even running all those other things like not feeling guilty that you want to go on this, you want to buy this boat and not be able to send your kids to school, right? So just... So maybe a long-winded tip, but go down to that bank, open up the checking account, get rid of all the crap that's going to make it easy to get to that money, and just have your paycheck, put some of it in there every week or every two weeks, and it'll change your life. I got more degrees in a thermometer in my profession, but that piece of advice is probably the thing that's changed more people's lives over the last 28 years is just build that discipline. So a little pro tip. Solid. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, that's it for that episode. Right? Yeah. We got... Uh, oh, I was going to say crawfish boil. I'll say the crawfish boil. It's you got to make it that one, Will. The 21st. We, we, we got... What? That's next, next weekend, Saturday. Yeah. Next Saturday, we got a crawfish boil going on. Cooking, what, 240 pounds? 200 right? where, where, you get, where you getting them from Louisiana, Louisiana. Ooh. driving to Louisiana lobsters mm-hmm. yeah I don't want them little tiny Florida crawfish no breaking, them the, big ones. breaking their claws and eating them yeah mm-hmm. yeah we get the big ones and we got the old Louisiana native driving up there to pick them up and coming on right back down here to cook them so it's gonna be a good time he's a coon ass we can just call him that <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we'll have a little wild game sausage mixed in there, despite yeah. some opposition from the 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 Cajun. I like yeah. a little, like a little variety in my crawdaddies. Taters well, with two hundred and forty pounds, I think we can throw a couple of pots in there and have sausage. Yeah, 
I might have thrown so, some uh, sprouts in there. What? Uh, how many hats we got left? I'd have to recount. We got can't be more than what? Maybe uh, maybe 10 fifteen, or, ten or fifteen. Yeah. yeah, but we have another fifty six on order. So if you missed out on your color you wanted this time, chances are it's about to be right back in stock here in the next couple of weeks. Whatever hats we have left, if we get that order of 56 before the crawfish boil, we'll have them all at the crawfish boil. They're all on sale. You'll see the updates on the Facebook page, which you'll find a link to the Facebook page down here in the bottom of this comment, uh, in the bottom of the uh, podcast description. Um, on the Facebook page, you follow that link and you can find that post. I pinned it right to the top. We're giving away a one-of-a-kind black under-pressure outdoors hat. All you got to do is like, comment, share it. Comment done, share it, and tag a friend. And you're in the drawing. I will give it to you, mail it to you, absolutely free. Run through those steps one more time because there's a lot of people that are getting two out of four, three out of four, but not a lot of people can close the deal when you go to four steps. It's like, oh, calculus is too hard. Yeah, You're going to like the post. Step one, like the post. You're going to share the post. Two. And then you're going to tag a friend. Three. And then you're going to comment done. Four. You can even even tag a friend and comment done in the same comment. So then you just combine steps. Steps three, you're down to three steps. Good to go. Made it even easier for you. And then right after that, go over to Backcountry Hunters and Angler. No, backcountryhunters.org and click on the Become a Member. Pay your $35 so you support public land, public water, and especially clean public water because that's where all the fishies live. And in the podcast description, there's going to be a link to the Florida chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Facebook group and a link to to where you can just hop right on there and join BHA. Yeah. Um and I want to I want to get a link out for Down, Down South. South Fishing Company. But how how can people find you? You can find me on Facebook with my name William McNutt. Uh, I have an Instagram page for Down South Fishing Company as well as website downsouthfishingcompany.com. Um Yeah, man, any any of that or contact these guys they can they can hook you up with me that's captain william mcnutt with two t's at the end right yeah Yeah, just as it sounds um we can hook you up with anything you want to do any any questions people have i don't care if it's just for you want to go fishing out of new smyrna beach and you have no idea what you're doing and you just you just want to talk to somebody that'll actually you know give you decent advice it's not going to run you in the ground I don't mind. If I answer, I got time. If I don't answer, I'm probably offshore fishing. Call, text, message me on any any form. Um, Captain W. McNutt over email on uh, gmail.com. Um, any one of those links, just get after it. If you want to go fishing, let me know. We'll post yeah. some of those links down in the... Yeah, we can put his website and Facebook and stuff in there. Yeah, we yeah, can throw it absolutely. into the uh, podcast description as well, so it's even easier to find you. You listen to the episode, and you can go right back to the podcast description, scroll down, click on it, boom, there you are. It's that easy. Yeah. I re- uh, really appreciate you joining us this week. It's going to be a great episode. Yeah, it's been fun. Hallelujah. Yeah. I, right. appreciate, I appreciate it, guys. No, man, we appreciate you coming over here. All right, you guys have a great week.